Faith. Um, what's up? How are we? How are you doing? I'm feeling okay. It's um, been almost a week since our since our accident. accident. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we we experienced a Texas phenomenon of our own this past week. We got slammed off the road, and uh, now my car is totaled on North Two Eighty One. Yeah, we're we're good. It's we're fine. We're a little. I feel a little grotesque. My my knees are heavily bandaged right now. You look like a leper, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, we're a little banged up, but but we're okay. We survived. Yeah, this felt important for the context of this episode for some reason. Because I'm I, th- I think I get like out of breath <laughs> at points. I think it's our divine purpose to to tell everybody Fulfill about this, despite the odds. The, this mystic that we're exactly about to talk about. Right. Um. So you wanna you wanna get into it? I have a little little something planned to start us off. Oh, yeah, awesome. Okay, so I want to start by asking you and anyone who is listening in appropriate conditions. Don't do this if you're if you're driving, obviously. Um, to close your eyes. You want me to close my eyes? I do. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna try to describe an image to you, and I want you to visualize it. Okay. I'll do my best. All right, so I'm going to describe how we're situated as a worm's eye view. (laughs) It's like we're seeing a strange illuminated cross-section of the earth. What we're looking at appears to be a rounded pit atop a dusty off-white background. The pit is filled about halfway with different symbols. The symbols have no obvious meaning. There are some that appear to look like suns or stars, some that just look like lines, some that look like crudely drawn birds. Some of these symbols are geometric, some seem organic and like something from nature. The uppermost symbol is a small drawing in a triangular composition. There's a point at the top that emits beams of black ink. Downward, it meets rounded semicircles that protrude from a rectangle. All of the symbols seem in conversation with each other. Below the pit, there's a reflection of the image. The reflected image has significantly fewer symbols in it. Do you have an image in your mind? I'm... I'm thinking warm thoughts and i have warm feelings that's good but yes how does this image make you feel how does it feel to be fed a cycle of visuals like that so quickly i i feel inundated with cryptic symbols from the unconscious that's so strange that you say that um (laughs) i wanted to start the pod this way because i wanted to get a sort of visual instinct you can open your eyes okay (laughs) I wanted to get a sort of visual instinct working before we delve into our topic, which is the artist and mystic Forrest Bess, who spent most of his life as a shrimp fisherman living in the small town of Bay City along the coast of East Texas. The image I just described is based on a painting by him called The Crowded Mind, completed in 1947. You could call Bess an outsider artist, a folk artist, a visionary painter even, but Bess referred to himself simply as a conduit. He claimed to have visions of symbols and images that would pass through his mind, transmitted from an unknown source. These images informed a good deal of his artwork. Today we're going to talk about these visions. Along with Bess's theories that derive from his interest in Jungian analysis, art, alchemy, the unification of the soul, solitude, and perhaps perhaps most notably, pseudo-hermaphroditism. Forrest Bess was a viscerally literal man, and he lived his life in a way that was acutely in line with his theories. Yeah, for the rest of the episode, I'm going to sure do my best. 
to do old force best justice yeah definitely did you like that wordplay oh i didn't get it but now but now i love it rest yeah Forrest Clemminger Best was born in 1911 in Bay City, Texas, in Matagorda County, about 70 miles southwest of Houston, at the mouth of the muddy Gulf of Mexico. His father was Butch Bess, an oil driller and fisherman, who would go on to ride the choppy waves of the Texas oil boom, shuffling around nearby towns, and his mother was Minta Lee, who often made biscuits sopped in syrup and salt pork grease and she was known around town for her love of drawing, something she apparently inherited from her mother. Not much is known about Forrest Bess's grandmother, other than sort of small-town whisperings that she was also an artist, who sometimes painted images that she saw while looking into the family's rain barrel, and that she died in the San Antonio State Mental Hospital in 1911, the year Forrest Bess was born. Bess was a prolific letter writer, most of what is known about Bess's inner workings comes from his very poetic and personal correspondences with friends, people across the art world, other small-town fishermen, people who would end up at his dock at the end of the day for dinner. In his letters, he often talks about the feeling of being an outsider and having this sensation of being internally divided, even as a child. There was the Bess who would help his father roughneck in the fields, Then there was the side that loved Greek mythology and saccharine sort of things like cats with eyes as big as mill wheels, the gingerbread man, the smell of a box of watercolors. It was Easter Sunday when Bess experienced what he calls his first vivid hallucinatory experience, his first vision. He woke up to see what appeared to be a small Dutch village appear on his mother's sewing table, complete with tiny people and cobblestones. He noticed a tiger appear on one side of his bed and then a lion on the other. I was four years old, but the vision has always been brilliant in my mind, he writes. As he got older, uh, Bess continued feeling different from his classmates, but his interest in drawing and painting grew. One of his first pieces was done with crude oil on cardboard, which I think is interesting considering his family history. Um, He was salutatorian at his high school, um, and as a compromise to his family, went on to college at A&M for architecture, and he hated it, hated it. He ended up transferring to UT, and this is where he started getting into anthropology, religion, psychology, sexual psychology. Um, Bess writes that a friend at the time was trying to get him to drop out to be a monk and build churches because he loved God. But Bess wrote back that he couldn't because he also loved Hesse Siddhartha and was kind of closeted and realizing realizing that at the time. And, you know, I'm sure there are monks who have passed through this world who were low-key gay guys who love Siddhartha. <laughs> um, but I think this is kind of illustrative of how Bess kind of struggled with that part of himself. Um... Yeah, so down the road, there's a letter that Bess writes, I believe it's from 1949, where he talks about the fishing canal that he uh, works in in kind of an interesting spiritual, metaphysical way. Um, And it kind of reminded me of the way that the river guide and Siddhartha kind of talk about the river in that book. Um, 
So I think that's interesting um, as something that's like timeless and representative to the path to enlightenment or the collective or something. Um, And the letter says, for the first time in my life, I feel at home and it's the place of my earliest memories as a child. Our life here is close to the elements. Riding along in my boat on the canal, pulling my shrimp trawl behind, I often look at the banks of the canal and their spoil and weeds. But with a bit of imagination, the miniature landscape becomes large, the mounds of dirt removed the canal, become hills and mountains, the weeds become beautiful jungle trees, and a very quiet feeling arises. That this is as it should be. The panorama is a reflection of a much greater panorama. The banks of a much greater river, and man moves along this great river, pausing here and there, but ever moving on. Um, And I wanted to read that because of the connection to Siddhartha um, and how it connects to different points in his life, Um, but also because of the way he talks about imagination um, as something that's kind of very real and transformative and sort of like a mechanism for greater understanding, because this definitely reflects certain mystic and alchemical ways of thinking about imagination. Um, And I think the most influential person to the theoretical framework best later develops, um, and we'll see this, is Carl Jung. And you see this surfacing here in this letter. For Jung, active imagination, along with the transcendent function, was key to the process of individuation for attaining psychic wholeness through the masculine and feminine union of the ego and the unconscious. Um, in Jeffrey Raff's Young and the Alchemical Imagination, which is a book we both read to kind of prepare for this, he discusses the ways in which this process is akin to the alchemical process, which I think is really interesting. Um, the alchemist and physician Paracelsus, the German mystic Jacob Burma, and the artist and writer William Blake were all thinkers that Forrest Best was definitely familiar with. He writes about them. Um, and each shared a reverence for the transformative powers of imagination, um, which is something to, to this crowd very distinct from the trifles of fantasy. Um, and they all shared this belief to some degree. Um, they considered it very ser- serious spiritual business, something with the power to transform base metals into gold, alter reality, and something that can help you achieve a transcendent state. So Bess's at UT, he doesn't know what to do with his life. He's reading a lot. He feels he can't be a monk because of his kind of expanding beliefs and his hidden homosexuality. And he's also reading Havelock Ellis's Psychology of Sex religious, re- Religiously, which Faith actually bought in an attempt to kind of better understand him. Um, Faith, do you want to tell them what you made of that book? Did you get very far? Um, I bought it. I've been buying a lot of books for this podcast because I'm like, it'll be easy to, you know, go back and reference things. But this book was just like completely dense with information and citations and there was no table of content or index or anything. Um, And it was, it was kind of in the state that I was in, it was kind of illegible. Um, I got through some interesting parts that have nothing to do with what we're talking about, but, (laughs) but a lot of it is just like studies on sex. Um, so I understand where Bess's sort of like um, medically inclined mind came from. Yeah. And it kind of like had the overarching belief that like homosexuality was impolite or something. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Bess drops out of school officially in 1932 and moves back to Bay City. He goes roughnecking in the oil fields for a while. He ambles around, as many people do in their youth. He takes trips to Mexico and sees, sees murals by, like, Diego Rivera. And he is painting himself more, um, kind of in a more impressionistic style, depicting real-life things. He was really into Van Gogh. Um, that was kind of his favorite artist at the time. And he had his first show in 1936 locally, um, and then he had a few shows in Houston and San Antonio. Um, you know, at this time in the late 30s, as you know, the world is sort of changing, and soon, as we'll find out, so would Bess's art in a very profound way. Yeah, and while all of this was happening to Bess in Bay City, World War II was gearing up. Um, in 1941, Bess enlisted in the army as a private. Military was pretty difficult for him. Uh, when In his youth, part of the reason that he always felt sort of like an outsider is because he had some desires that he was ashamed of. And those kind of came to a point when he was in the military in 1944. He made a pass at another soldier, which didn't go over well. The soldier hit him in the head with a lead pipe, and his head injury led to long hallucinations and then eventually to a nervous breakdown. He had one of his first adult hallucinations at this point, which was he saw uh, what he described as a silly hippo and a black jackass. He ends up going to the base clinic to see what's 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 up. <laughs> <laughs> and he's given a sedative. Um, he okay. goes back to bed. <laughs> and he has another hallucination of a bug and what Bess identifies as the poor little puffball of love. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And... So Bess, Bess has these hallucinations. He's asleep and he wakes up crying. He keeps saying out loud that his heart is broken. He's feeling all of this inward pain. He goes back to the base clinic. The doctor tells him to return later. He's pretty down in the dumps at this point. He's thinking of suicide. Then he wakes up the next day in a good mood. And even through this good mood, through this comeback, um, he thinks of the animals every once in a while. And he says that he gets chills down his spine. The hallucinations were something that he just didn't really understand, and especially given the context of, you know, having to leave the military and being very outwardly and violently not accepted. It's sort of just a visual representation of his breakdown. Um, and he made a painting called My Breakdown Triptych that has since been lost that portrays the hippo, the donkey, and the poor little puffball of love. It's so cute. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't want to say it's cute, this is breakdown. Tragic, but it's tragic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, I, the, but I love it. Yeah, there's um, sort of a very poor rendering of the little puffball of love, and it, I think it looks exactly like you would picture it. It's a little white puffball. Um, airy. I, I think the, the silly hippo looks like a, a dark-sided moon man <laughs> character. Um, right. So... Here's where we are now. Things are things are ramping up a little bit. Um, I know a lot of you out there, you probably hear the phrase, given a sedative by the American military <laughs> <laughs> that is followed by intense hallucinations and maybe your, your ears perk up a little bit. So yeah, there are a lot of questions that could be asked here. Is this a, a proto-MKUltra military, <laughs> military attempt at creating... Um, a know, monster, an immortal, an immortal alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> Pro- Project uh, 
IA uh, subject one. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think we could draw comparisons to some other uh, program to kill uh, <laughs> subjects that I don't think warrant a comparison because Bess is very. Um, I think he was he was being programmed to paint. <laughs> <laughs> programmed to to integrate yeah it's like see when people you know begin the the talk about how the cia funded abstract art (laughs) 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 the military funded one shrimp fisherman who sought to change the world so after forrest best leaves the military he moves back to texas but this time he moves to San Antonio and he sets up a little painting camp downtown right near La Vaita. Um, Yeah, we just want to say up until here, uh, his work was pretty much mostly impressionistic, um, recognizable stuff. Uh, paintings of the coast, landscapes, uh, people. Um, but the hallucinations he experienced in the early 40s were very startling and something that were ended up being very important to him and marked sort of a natural breaking point in his style yeah and after he experienced those hallucinations he pretty much almost exclusively begins painting these visionary experiences he had either while he dreamed or just images that would appear to him as sets of symbols he had a sense that they were very important um and he felt like he wanted to understand them yeah and that's kind of the work that he ended up being most known for so After all of this, Bess leaves the military, and he moves back to Texas, but he lands in San Antonio, where he sets up shop down by La Vaita, and he begins to paint these visions he's kind of become increasingly aware of. Uh, And before we get into Bess's time navigating the art world, I want to talk a little bit about how Forrest Bess painted these visions. Yeah. Something he writes about himself is, I can close my eyes in a dark room, and if there is no outside noise or attraction, I can see color, patterns, and forms that make up my canvases. I've always copied these arrangements exactly without elaboration. And this is what Bess's art is all about. These visions sort of show themselves to him. He's described as being able to paint what's on the back of his eyelids. Often he would see these visions, uh, which were largely comprised of sort of on the surface level, I guess, nonsensical symbols. He would see these in his sleep. And he kept a little journal on his nightstand. He would draw them in. Sometimes he would even wake up, and when he would check the journal, he'd be surprised at what he found. He wouldn't even remember waking up in the night to draw. His paintings were mostly pretty small, um, and his paintings that were made back in Bay City in Chincapin, he would often compose with original frames that he would make from the driftwood that would wash up on shore. So I think it was the personal nature of these paintings, the simples that have no readily available meaning, the homemade frames, the size that forced the viewer closer in, I think all of this sort of separated his art from the popular trends of abstract expressionism as th- at the time. Totally. Um, yeah, Bess wanted people to look at these paintings the same way he did, with the goal to decipher the code he had seemingly been chosen as a conduit to relay. Yeah, and I also want to add that him, at this time, not really... He, he kind of... It caused him a lot of anguish that he wasn't really fully able to understand right the source from which these symbols and were coming from Um, and he kind of increasingly became fixated on trying to understand them and develop theories around them yeah he became like like devastatingly aware of some sort of layer deeper than 
just his thoughts, his ego that was sending these messages to him. Um, yeah. And these are the paintings that sort of get him recognized. He's back in San Antonio. He's doing these paintings. And then in the mid-1940s, he's put into contact with Betty Parsons, who, as you might know, is a very prolific art dealer, collector, and artist that was active in the New York art scene during the point in time the city seemed to sort of become the once thriving hub for art we all know it as now. The Big Apple. Exactly. In 1947, the same year... Um, that he painted one of my favorite paintings from him, The Crowded Mind, which is the one that I described in the introduction. He sends a letter to Betty Parsons about the recent changes in his art, and he says this, I often thought of myself during this period as a silly little bull tied with a rope to a tree. I didn't know whether my rope was just tied short or I had wound the rope around the tree during my grazing, yet I felt the limitations. I wanted more grass. Now the mind could be given free rein unfettered. It had unlimited visions, which it could call as it wanted them. It could dictate, and I would not consciously try to control or create. So, in the fall of 1949, Forrest Bess is 38 years old now. He heads up to New York for the first time, a couple paintings under his hand. He uh, has been officially given his first New York City art show by Betty Parsons in December, and he shows up three months early. He's just so excited. He wants to get a taste of the big city. Um, Betty Parsons is a little confused. Um, she says, but Forrest, you're three months early. Um, so he gets in contact. He's like, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. So he gets in contact with some of his Texas friends. Um, there are always Texans wherever you go who will lend a helping hand. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, he, he starts getting a sense of what New York really is during this three month period. And he doesn't like it very much. Good for him. Yeah. He misses the shrimp. God bless his heart. How could you um, stay away from them? Yeah. Yeah, and so he's he's up in New York and he's doing the things he feels like he should be doing. He's going to Greenwich Village. He's drinking at the Cedar Tavern like the big boys, de Kooning and Rothko and Pollock. But what de Kooning and Rothko and Pollock were doing was much different. Pollock was doing these famously large, messy paintings. Rothko was surrounding his studio with his huge paintings of meditative, glowing colors. Forrest Best was just a small-town boy getting his art out to the public while still trying to understand it himself. Uh, and he didn't feel very good in this environment. He felt the people in the scene viewed him as a hick. He felt more like a spectacle. And even in this world that provided him with the means to share his visions, he felt pushed to the perimeter and sort of forced to view from afar the connection that he was looking for. Betty Parson ended up liking him so much that he has six shows in New York from 1949 to 1967. Meanwhile, he decides to leave New York. He moves back to Chincapin Bay, which is about 20 miles south of Bay City, and he lives in a tiny shack of his own creation on a little island close to shore where he would spend his days painting, catching shrimp to sell as bait, and reading. Yeah, so, so a little bit before he moves back, um, to, t to Texas. Um, in 1948, Bess uh, had read an article from the famed art historian Meyer Shapiro, um, and he sends him a letter uh, and forms kind of a very intimate and sweet, important relationship uh, with Meyer Shapiro. Um, and he ultimately ends up meeting him in New York, and he describes their first encounter uh, in fishing terms because that's kind of like you know very poetically how he um relates to the art world yeah in a lot of ways and he says that meeting Meyer was like being in a skiff with a good friend in the bay 
um he he kind of really eventually found a unique confidant in Meyer um similar to his relationship with Betty Parsons um you know being primarily most of the time isolated in the Texas Gulf his letters ended up being one of the primary ways Bess would communicate his developing theories in relation to his visions um that he was a conduit for particularly the visions more spiritual psychological and physical implications um, and we should say all of these letters, paintings, and a lot of the biographical information we're referencing come from a couple main sources. Um, there's a beautiful book um, and documentary by a man named Chuck Smith that we recommend yeah, you check also, out. Also, Ari Markopoulos, who you might know, he's like a street photographer from New York. He actually did Jay-Z's Magna Carta um, <laughs> album art. And the Forest Best documentary. He's yeah. <laughs> a man of many talents. Yeah, so when he returns to Bay City, people are kind of confused, and they're asking Bess, what happened? What did, you, what, what did New York do to you? Why are you acting like a damn fool? What, what does the lines mean? Why aren't you painting our kids and our houses, the coast our and potatoes? Our puppies and, and pelicans. Yeah. Um, and as a response, Bess writes a really beautiful article in the Bay City Tribune, on why this sort of switch occurred. Um, it starts off with a quote from Faust. Uh, yeah, he, Goethe was kind of one of Bess's guys. Um, and the quote is, Yes, to this thought I hold with firm persistence. The last results of wisdom stamps it true. He only earns his freedom in existence who da- daily conquers them anew. Yeah, and so in this article, Bess sort of gets into some of his inspirations as well as further connecting his idea of what fishing means to what painting means. He talks a little bit about seeing cave paintings for the first time and the way that they sort of disturbed him and comforted him. Yeah. I think it's it's the sense of, you know, looking at something that was created so long ago and it being recognizable to you and thinking, why, like... Why does this feel true? Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, art seems like something, I guess, that exists on the hierarchy of needs or something. So it's hard for artists now to understand the fact that people created forever. Um, And it is sort of, it's sort of like a strange and isolating feeling because it makes you question your own work. And I think that that's sort of what Bess was doing in this moment. And he ends the article with with a really beautiful description. He says, neither psychiatry nor any science explains or needs to explain the phenomenon of beauty. To me, there is no greater beauty than that which is truth for the individual. I'm fully aware of the dangerous crags of schizophrenia and that a foot slip through fear can hurl one down through space. I feel that I know the nature of the crags and the reason for their being there. I have no choice but to follow the vision. As a fisherman, there are times when all conditions, weather, water, wind, are unfavorable, yet, There is the feeling that fish can be caught, and by following this feeling, it becomes so. I think that the search for truth transcends all. So in the Jung Collective Works, he talks a little bit about the historical significance of the fish, and he says, God himself and his everlasting fires may be caught like a fish in the deep sea. So continuing a little bit with the fish theme, what Bess is getting at is basically the idea of God or the whole or the original vision, something entirely encompassing that transcends any one individual mind. Reading Jung helped Bess truly realize this, that his visions were, in fact, 
symbols that were not created by the ego, but that rose from the collective unconscious. And in 1958, Best completed a painting that he considers the first painting he ever truly integrated. This integration is a process kind of similar to what Jung often talks about as individuation. And Best applies it to his art by sitting with a finished canvas until some sort of concentration on the symbols bring him to their unconscious content. Through this process of integrating his artwork, Best believed he found the key to the riddle, which was basically a cipher, an alphabet of shapes and symbols that were letting him witness ancient secrets to immortality and the union of the soul. We should describe the painting that began the integration. It's called Entitled 11A, completed in 1958. It has a red background and blue and white stripes like water at the perceived shoreline, what looks like driftwood in the distance. Part of Bess's code revealed the driftwood shapes were symbolic of craters and vertical parallel lines were symbolic of the passage of time. His experience of this integration took place during great concentration on a very stormy and windy night. Bess looked at the painting for hours and eventually came to what he felt was a distant memory of looking over craters, seeing long white blocks of color that he understood would one day become clouds. A memory of what he believed was the beginning of time, something that he described as very ancient, very lonely, and very desolate. Yeah, with a lot of Bess's paintings, um, he kind of talks about how sometimes he, he would kind of know the truth of the origin of the image fairly immediately. It, it was like a second nature, and for others like this one, it took a while to kind of fully crystallize um, the origin of, of the image that he was receiving. Yeah, just to get everything all in order, um, as we've hinted at, something that becomes crucial to Bess's worldview at this point in the 50s and beyond that he borrowed from Jung and alchemy is the idea of a tense relationship between opposites that sort of instigates a series of transformations that lead to the manifest self. Um, yeah, as Faith said, Bess finally found a prime interpreter for his visions through Jung. Um, and in Raff's book, there's an underlying argument made, obviously, that the Jungian framework of reality is in the tradition of spiritual alchemy. And he um, talks about how spiritual psychic alchemy and kind of like physical garden variety alchemy that you hear about, um, and there's other types of physical, but the turning base metals into gold are both gradual processes that require this sort of tension, usually between gendered opposites. Um, you have the Red King, which is sulfur, and the White Queen, which is usually mercury, and that's crucial to the creation of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, for Jung, the conscious mind was coded masculine, and the unconscious mind was coded feminine, and we're not going to get into, like, you know, the psychology of that, um, whatever, but this harmonizing of masculine and feminine is also mirrored in the alchemical image of the pseudo-hermaphroditic rebus, um, so it's interesting. Um, in addition to seeing his symbols as deriving from a Jungian universal reservoir, Bess really ran with the idea that the tension and eventual harmony between gendered opposites has the potential to lead to psychic unity in even a divine and immortal state, um, as we've said. This would become foundational to what would become Bess's thesis, a consolidation of all his theories that began with his visions. Um... So yeah, the, this theme led best to be transfixed with the figure of the pseudo-hermaphrodite. This was particular, this I think was of 
particular interest to him as someone who experienced a great deal of inner conflict between his inner feminine and masculine, his Jungian anima and animus. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that, Camille? <laughs> what do I think about his fixation on Jungian theory and his uh, b- mounting fixation on uh, the union of masculine and feminine? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I... Uh- I think I think we should, you know, bring this back down to earth a little bit. We got to and talk about what this means in a in a physical, visceral sense. Yeah, I think I think we're leaving a lot to the imagination and there's a lot between the lines, but it it is leading to something that is very grounded in the real world with bloody <laughs> physical physical implications that um you know yeah best best takes things into his own hands certainly so around this time um best stumbled upon some information regarding the australian aboriginals and a sort of sexual initiation rite of passage form of birth control procedure that they would do where they would make an incision on the lower part of the male genitals um Bess read about this and then attempted it on himself while he was drunk, and he ultimately did not succeed. Um, this is some information that we had a little bit of difficulty deciding how to present because it's it's in the book it gets very it gets very graphic and detailed, and for the sake of the tone, we'll probably cover about like one tenth of what we learned about it. Yeah, if you want to see uh, up close and personal images of the incisions that are made you can look into chuck's book or yeah yeah slide in our dms yeah if if you're just interested in the in i guess the procedure itself the literature around it we can we can feed that to you um of course but for now i think it's best if we sort of structure the discussion regarding the nature of bess's procedures through the lens of the alchemical and cultural reasons as to why he did it rather than how Uh, That being said, after reading about the sexual initiation rituals of the Australian aboriginals, Bess felt that they understood a sort of fundamental aspect of human life, which is the need to become what he identifies as a pseudo-hermaphrodite for the sake of inner unity and commitment to the original vision. He initially performed the procedure on himself and felt a sort of euphoric revelation that quickly degraded back into depression. So after the procedure, he agreed to the advice of his family and he went to see a psychiatrist um something something kind of funny he asked for a Jungian psychiatrist and he got a young psychiatrist like a like a pipsqueak like a a young man (laughs) like a baby face nubile man in his 20s yeah he didn't know much about nothing yeah he hadn't even (laughs) read Jung ever he had no idea what the heck so so Bess was trying to understand you know Jungian integration to this young man um, and, the, <laughs> and the young man was so very confused, um, and Bess eventually decided that it wasn't worth it. And so he just said that the subincision was a result of a lost fish hook. Um, and the young man psychiatrist decided that Bess was just having a traumatic break from the pain and immediately pronounced him cured. Um, he also tried to bribe Bess into giving him a painting, but Bess said, 
you weren't even ready to own one of my paintings. And he's probably right. (laughs) I think he is. Yeah, so after that, Bess just kind of decides to get back to it. He returns to his little (laughs) hut. He continues reading his alchemy. He's looking and he's looking at the images. He's finding the phallic symbols. He's seeing himself in the trees that are growing from the men's bodies. He's Um, connecting the dots. He's connecting the dots. Uh, He's fishing. People are kind of, you know, traveling to meet him at his shack and to kind of like hold court with him and you know enjoy the the spoils of his uh fish fish mining um and he's periodically having art shows um and you know bumping into various figures he's writing letters to betty and meyer um but yeah he kind of remains steadfast in his motivation through all of this Bess continues to do his research on the what he refers to as the mutilation, the incision, um, and he decides that that form, the pseudohermaphroditic form caused by the incision, is something that's been transplanted into his brain from the original vision. It's something yeah. that's the desirable state for man. Um, and he comes to believe that male is inherently male and female. So he writes out some of his theories, and some of his theories are as follows. Um, The potentialities of this incision form the foundation of the basic myth behind the civilization and its various cultures. All symbolism and art points towards this mutilation. Alchemy was a study of primitive endocrinology pointing directly to the Australian sub-incision as being the key to regeneration. It all gets into immortality, and I think that that sort of leads best into... I guess the alchemical formation of his life, yeah. um, the unification of the soul, it, it leads him to um, a second operation done this time by an actual doctor. Yeah, he somehow convinced a local small town <laughs> Texas doctor um, to perform an operation on him. Um, several operations eventually um it's kind of opaque um i think he ended up giving him some of his paintings as part of the deal yeah and and he begins to like shop these ideas around um seeing what sticks with other people and unsurprisingly people are not particularly um interested (laughs) (laughs) um he he sends his theories to betty parsons who is in the middle of, I think, planning another show for him. And he asks her if she will display the theories next to his art. Um, She says, concerning the hanging of your thesis in your next show, I do not feel I want to. No matter what the relationship is between art and medicine, I would rather keep it purely on the aesthetic plane. Why don't you show your paintings in the thesis in a medical hospital? (laughs) I hope you understand. Love, Betty. Such a diplomatic (laughs) slay. I mean, let him speak his truth, you know? Yeah, God. He also sent his thesis, which, you know, is described as, like, kind of, like, postings of these tenants that we described and also, like, cryptic alchemical images and stuff. Um, He sent it to, like, President Eisenhower and, like, peanut farmers and (laughs) all all swaths of... uh, yeah, the spectators. peanut farmer. The peanut farmer, I think, said, 
maybe future generations will be more open to this idea which is a very kind a very kind and thoughtful response um absolutely he also was just consistently sending letters to carl jung himself um god yeah kind of just trying to like correct jung or saying like you know yeah yes and and then finally further (laughs) and then finally carl jung took the bait fisherman's bait and (laughs) (laughs) responded yeah he said he said what you have found is not unique it has been found possibly once a century from the beginning of time it invariably leaves the individual with the feeling that he has made the great discovery um which is uh, kind of brutal but in my opinion also kind of proves bess's point because yeah. if it's being rediscovered once a century every time since the beginning of history isn't that kind of the original vision amen i mean he's clearly on to, to something, something some sort of original truth right uh, yeah he and, and well and he and he also says that he was very jazzed by Jung's response and that kind of emboldened him to continue his his mission of achieving hermaphrodite status yeah yeah and I think um Carl Jung's letter it ended off with the sentence uh let us return to the safe basis of facts which i don't think really uh i guess reached for us best in the way that jung hoped it would um and he continued to shop these theories around he eventually sent them to meyer shapiro who of course was basically his best friend his mentor um he considered shapiro his mentor i think jung the vision and then goethe like the truth um (laughs) his his guys yeah his guys and Meyer Shapiro responded in a way that was ultimately very kind very thoughtful but also critical and he said you know uh Bess Forrest you're you're not pointing to anything that's actually been written as support for your theories you're just making sort of vague gestures to art to images um but as we know the gods see reality in beautiful images that express truth far better than any written text possibly could. And regarding the more elevated <laughs> beauties not given to sense perception to see, soul sees them and speaks about them without the instruments of sense perception, but it has to ascend to contemplate, leaving sense perception down below. But just as in the case of the beauties perceived by the senses, it is not possible to speak about them to those who have not seen them, or to those who have never grasped them for what they are. Plotinus. Plotinus. Um, so basically Forrest Bess was looking to alchemical images and alchemical images aren't always created to simply support text sometimes they're created to convey something that's independent of the text altogether yeah I feel like alchemy is like a inherently Gnostic framework in the sense that it's like the, 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 the information is not meant to be easily accessed and it's kind of kind of intentionally encrypted exactly from from the common yeah man so what we're gonna do now (laughs) what i'm gonna attempt to do is i want to talk a little about bit about um gerard dorn who is a 16th century alchemist writer who was a student and translator of paracelsus um he talks about the great work which is just the alchemical process basically as having three separate unions um 
three different points in which opposing sides of the self unite, three separate levels of self formation. Okay, so the first union that Dorn describes is when ego discovers the reality of the unconscious and tries to attempt it to understand it. For me, the way that I see this in relation to Forrest Bass's life, I think, is when he leaves the army and he begins to paint from his visions again. He has this realization that he's a conduit and he's realizing in himself this unconscious state that's trying to speak to him that he's in tension with and yeah. he's looking to begin the process of interpreting that state. The way Dorn describes the second union is that the self takes on a life and reality of its own within the psyche. The ego self-realizes and becomes part of the manifest self. And there's a union between the ego and the unconscious. So the first step was pretty much the realization, the tension, um, a new manifest self. And this is the full union between the ego and the unconscious. Uh, where I see that in Bess's life, I think, is when he integrates his first painting. This process, the looking at the canvas, the focusing during a huge dark storm, and allowing it to unite with the original vision he finds in it. That quiet, cold beach unites his ego with the unconscious world from which he pulls all of his symbols and images unknowingly. And then the third union that Dorn writes about is is where the new self comes into a level of reality that goes beyond just the self. It comes into the reality of the original world, the divine world, the unus mundus. This is the world before spirit and matter were separated. And I think that this is where things get a little bit complicated because I think that in the alchemical process, this is sort of where Forrest Best takes some liberties with his interpretation. And I think this might be from looking at photos of the Rebus, which is the male-female character we mentioned earlier depicted in alchemical drawings, usually as yeah. the result of the great work. Um, and in the third union, one's new self becomes aware of a reality that exists far deeper. So I think that where Bess found the connection is that the new self is a physical transformation. Um, and this is, I guess, like a spiritual, the separation between physical alchemy and, you know, creating gold and, and then spiritual alchemy, creating a new self. So Bess's attempt to induce a pseudo-hermaphrodite state through surgery is a means to force the state and to create a sort of physical transformation of the body, which allows one to access what he describes as the desired state, the intended state, a physical union of the selves, a state that might usher in immortality. Yeah, and, you know, we'll, we'll go into this in a little bit, but... As a as a series of kind of real world uh, misfortunes kind of impact him, he he kind of increasingly increasingly finds it harder to stay true to this kind of to this union to the to this motivation, um, and and kind of loses the thread a bit as yeah. he's dealing with these hardships. And that's not. That sort of physical transformation isn't something that's entirely unique. There were a lot of alchemists who had, obviously, ideas about physical transformations or the ability to create an entirely new life from aspects of the self. Like, Paracelsus thought that if you left, um, you know, uh, substance from the male long enough, it would create a homunculi. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, there, there's, like variants of the homunculi yeah. right there's like incubating 
it in the horse's womb. Yeah. Homunculi. And then there's it's like crazy a- how there are so many ways to create a homunculi and so few people try it. Nobody who's even trying. Who's even trying to create a homunculus these days? Nobody wants to work anymore. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to work anymore. Um those deep deeply disturbing creatures. Yeah. Um, Alright, so before we get into the end of Bess's life, I wanted to talk a little bit about what initially drew me to him. Um, I'm a painter myself, and as I've gotten older, it's been kind of harder and harder not to tend towards pessimism when thinking about the state of art in the art world. But every so often, I discover an artist that just feels very refreshing to me in terms of like what I desire in art. And I first discovered Forrest Bess probably late last year when I was looking up information about Texas mystics. I read the Texas Monthly article on him, and I sent it around to some of my friends. Everyone had the same very excited reaction. I started to think about him a lot. I remember reading something one of his friends wrote about how Bess's spirit still just sits and lives in his paintings. And then a couple weeks after I first learned about him, Clint and I went to the Sama, and I saw a strange little driftwood sculpture from across a large room, and I was immediately drawn to it. Then after just like circling it a couple times, I realized that it was actually by Forrest Bess. And I didn't even know at the time that he did any sculptures, but that moment felt really affirming to me. Being physically drawn to something that was unknowingly created by someone that I felt very spiritually, emotionally, artistically connected to. I think for me, what the most interesting thing about painting as a medium is, is its ability to relay something. As we were talking earlier about some of the alchemical images... Uh, just completely outside of verbal communication. It's a moment that doesn't really exist, something lost to time, a feeling. It's a voyeuristic look into the visions of others. And it's hard to access that feeling when making art these days because the expectation for constant communication seems to have kind of pervaded every aspect of our lives. This is what I find so refreshing about Bess. Forrest Bess was a person who really, truly dedicated his life to art. To some extent, the art world has always necessitated a level of visibility and status, and now it feels like the only way to succeed in the art world is to constantly be producing, and more importantly, to document every moment of your production. Yeah. The world is not often conducive to strong and quiet minds like Best and like a lot of other artists, Um, and art as a meditative practice has kind of become lost in, I think, like the spectacle of all of that seems sometimes like people don't want to make art they want to be artists they want to have the archetype and the visibility without making the work that in my opinion deserves it um and i really respect that Bess rejected all of this but above all i think i respect that he rejected it not out of just a sheer rebellion or criticism but because all he really wanted was to just paint and fish and read so yeah i wanted to say a little bit about that before we get into the end of forrest bess's life because the end of his life is marked by a couple different tragedies that we don't really want to define the story Um, we want it to be defined by his place in art and the love that he sort of seemed to just garner from everyone he met um yeah and in 1961 bess was preparing for a large retrospective by betty parsons that was also the year that hurricane carla sort of devastated the gulf coast Um, And it also sort of devastated his life. His studio was reduced to just a concrete slab, and he lost about three years of artwork. Um, It was one of the biggest Gulf Coast hurricanes to hit to date, and and it occurred pretty soon after the surgeries in 1961. 
Parsons decided to go through with the retrospective regardless of the lack of new work. Um, But Forrest Best was so financially drained in the fallout of the storm that he couldn't even make it up. Yeah, so at this point in Bess's life, things were kind of coming to a head. His mom's health was worsening, and she eventually dies kind of shortly after he moves in with her. He develops skin cancer on his nose from being out on the water all the time, fishing, sitting on the dock, um, and his drinking kind of gets the better of him. And eventually, he is committed by his brother to the San Antonio State Mental Hospital after several incidences of public nudity and disturbing his neighbors, which he writes he doesn't, he has no recollection of. Um, And if you remember, this is the same hospital his grandmother died in the year he was born. His grandmother was also a painter who claimed to have visions. Um, She would see things in the bottom of the family's rain barrels. Yeah, even in the mental hospital, though, he seemed to develop a group of people around him who seemed to love him. He would tell the patients in his art therapy classes stories from Egypt and teach them about the meanings of different hieroglyphics. Uh, Eventually, Forrest was released to Waco and then a nursing home where he awaited a final show at the Manila in Houston. But unfortunately, the show never came. Forrest, in his old age, kind of failed to realize this, but he continued to hope that his art would be shown again. And it was, but not in the way that he had hoped. Um, In the spring of 1977, very kind ladies at the Bay City Arts League went around town collecting some of his pieces and put on a show for him locally. He showed up in his wheelchair, um, and this part really touches me, the fact that Bess's eccentricities and sort of grand ideas that might have not matched the Southern culture of the time only endeared the local women to him more. Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah, um, and not just the local women, but like the fishermen that would come visit him, pretty much everyone who stopped in his little in his little hut for a cup of coffee, they all seemed to love him a lot. Or a cup of shrimp stew. Yeah, <coughs> exactly. Um And then, yeah, several months after the art show in 1977, Bess died of a stroke, um, and next to his bed there was a journal, his final journal. And the final entry in the journal read, The dreams are very full of symbols, several dreams each night. I can't help thinking that this is the beginning of the end. Um, yeah, it's been cool to kind of examine some of the texts um, that Bess read and to try to see how they informed his his worldview. Uh, yeah, I think um, we don't necessarily, you know, agree with his, his theories, but I think they're compelling because they show sort of a spiritual seeking that follows in the tradition of some of these interesting thinkers of the past. Um, Paracelsus, Dorn, Burma, Jung. In many ways, you could say Bess was someone who was meant to live in another time. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I think like these ideas sound sort of outrageous to us, and in many ways they are, because a lot of ideas from the past sound outrageous to us, in the same way that a lot of the ideas we have now would sound outrageous to people who lived in the past. But these ideas that Bess had sound like they were from like the brain of an alchemist or someone yeah. who's, who was involved in actually writing and doing experiments at that time. Totally. Um, And his letters, some of which you can find online, also really show um, something that I think is really special about him, and that's his kind of poetic understanding of the world and how he was motivated in a lot of ways by 
beauty and love um and this is something love is something he never really felt he could truly have in a conventional way um, for various reasons he always seemed to be grasping at understanding and some sort of universal or original truth um the inner conflict he felt really motivated him to take matters into his own hands in the end and you might think he was just mentally ill, but I think his life should make us kind of question the nature of mental illness itself. Yeah, and thinking about the whole uh, symbol of water and all that too, there's a letter that he wrote um, earlier in his life, I think like soon after he met Meyer Shapiro, where he described to Meyer Shapiro just the presence of mental illness in the Bay and on the coast. And oh, he would yeah. talk about he would talk about how people that showed up to his house um from like their ocean journeys always seemed just so sad and they would they would come into his home and they would come crying and talking about just like how they don't know what to do they feel like lost and i think that that's interesting because water is kind of seen as a healing thing like jung really appreciated water and i think that he always made a point to live by the water but i guess it's a case of you know being so involved with something that is so representative of the unconscious it it can kind of draw people away from i guess themselves um sometimes yeah i think that's i think that's true um yeah best to always kind of felt most at home when he was living in the chinkapin bay um he wrote it in several letters over the years and um it's the way he lived his life and spending his days on his fishing boat and his nights reading, dreaming, and drawing his visions. Um, there's an image from the alchemical book of Lamb Spring that is interpreted by Jeffrey Raff and Jung in the Alchemical Imagination, which we read to kind of prepare for this. That shows the first stages of the journey to individuation. There are two fish facing away from each other, representing the tension between the ego and the unconscious. Um, and then there's a little man on a little fishing boat waiting on the water. And Raph explains that he represents the alchemist. This is like Forrest Bess on his boat off the Texas shore. Um, when I was reading more William Blake preparing for this, because um, he's someone who Bess read and cited in, in his letters, um, I was leafing through Songs of Innocence and Experience, um, and I came across the poem, The Poison Tree, about the guy being kind of mad at his friends, so he kind of cultivates a tree that produces a poison fruit and deceitfully, you know, tempts the guy, and then he dies. <coughs> and um, honestly, it just reminded me of how much I like the the band Grouper. <laughs> um, and they have a song inspired by that poem with the same name. Um, and after going through the poems, I started listening to more Grouper, and I kind of realized one of her songs that I love, um, Heavy Water, I'd Rather Be Sleeping, is kind of actually very Jungian. Uh, Faith, you're gonna have to humor me, because I'm going to read a verse from the song, that's, but... That's good. Do what you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not gonna sing it, but it's, um... We can auto-tune it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Just make me sound like T-Pain. <laughs> Um, on dreams, I'm moving through heavy water. The love is enormous. It's lifting me up. I'd rather be sleeping. I'd rather fall in your tidal waves, right where the deepest currents fall. Um, yeah, and once again, to Jung, water was this kind of symbol for the unconscious, um, the realm of symbols that Bess interfaced with in his dreams, and in a sense, waded through on his boat while he was shrimp fishing. 
You could say that Bass was motivated by something close to an enormous love, a psychic wholeness, the love he couldn't find in his romantic life, the key to the riddle or the as the salvation for humanity, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think the song is very beautiful. I think it's has a very dreamy and bleary quality, um, and I think that's a zone that Bess occupied often. Um, you know, and something I want to ask, if you were alive today, would Forrest Bess be a grouper fan? <laughs> I, I think he would be. I have to agree. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of this, a lot of Forrest Bess's life opens up some interesting questions for us. There was something I found interesting um, in his book of symbols, which obviously this isn't a good medium for us to like describe the symbols to you and what they mean, but I'll attach some pictures um, on the social media and stuff so you can see. But some of the things that he wrote were that different colors had different meanings. Um, in specific, I think that he said that like men were always represented by red and women were always represented by white, which I think uh, shows up in in Jung's The Red Book. And it also shows up just throughout art history, which I find really interesting, like the Minoans um, who were active in present day Crete off the coast of Greece. They always depicted their men as red and their women as white, um, just differences in the skin. I think that that's kind of um, generally attributed to the fact that like men were out in the fields working and would would get darker in the sun um, and the women would generally stay inside but there are certain things like that where I know that Forrest Bess obviously read Jung and was interested in art um, and so there are certain things I guess that he noticed in his symbols that clearly have like historical connections so it's interesting to I think like interrogate that and see where these things come from because he's pulling from history which makes one think that like a lot of the symbols that he has found have a basis you know like yeah there is some sort of collective uh vision to a lot of what Forrest Bess was laying down things that repeat over time that show up in different places yeah um yeah I think kind of wrapping up here I, I think studying the life and works of Forrest Bess you know raise a lot of questions to like the modern person um you know some of them being like does something like a Jungian framework for seeing the world does that exist is that true is there a collective reservoir from which you know images universal images derive that we all have access to yeah and i guess just more personally like where where have you felt the collective unconscious play into your life and what aspects of yourself do you feel like have been derived from maybe like your ancestors the people that came behind you in the place that you or before you um in the place that you live how are you connected sort of unwillingly unknowingly to these things that have formed so much of who you are um just by their sheer presence their yeah. sheer be being there yeah it's also interesting thinking about forest best in a modern context like obviously the world now is i guess more open-minded generally than it was then um the idea of gender has changed a lot and clearly what forest best was doing is not really in line with 
um, you know, the discourse that is prevalent today. But yeah. there are parallels, I think, between the way that he felt and the way that a lot of other people feel. And so it's interesting to kind of decide how to talk about this, um, this experience that Forrest Best specifically had without conflating it to like a larger, a larger uh, set of discourse. Yeah, absolutely. Hey. Yeah. We gotta get down to Bay City. We do. We absolutely do. I've been wanting to go to Bay City for so long. Now, um, uh, if I ever get a car again, after, <laughs> ever, you know, ever since the accident, our, our plans have been sort of uh, destroyed. Yeah, we had grand plans to to run all around this great state. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I, I want to be in Bay City. I want to feel the coastal breeze. Um, I want to go to Chinkapin and try to triangulate the location of Bess's now demolished houseboat. Um, <laughs> I want to bring our metal detector that we bought on New Year's Day and try to, to find some of his relics and yeah. tools that he used. Camille, it's insane to me to think that just off the coast of Texas there are lost forest Bess paintings. Like, I... When I, when I really <laughs> I internalize know. that, I'm like, this is why I studied anthropology and I don't understand anything about water archaeology, <laughs> but I feel like if they just Aquatic gave me a apes. big net, if they, if someone just gave me a big net and a boat, I could find something. And $10,000. Yeah. They're probably like covered with oil now, but. And, and crustaceans. Yeah. But it would be worth millions. It's, it's the thrill of the chase really though yeah and and even if it was worth millions i wouldn't i wouldn't sell it i would put it in my bedroom and i would integrate it <laughs> <laughs> yes oh god i just think he's i think he's so fascinating and so fun and it makes me feel like warm to to just think about his small town life he still feels very much alive to me yeah um yeah, I wanna I wanna go to the Chinkapin Bay and go hog wild on the the oil poisoned shrimp. Uh, exactly. I wanna eat a chowder for a, a sandwich. Yeah, there we'll we'll say very preliminarily, there will be a part two to this episode. Yeah, this is we've been architecting this since yeah. the very beginning. It won't follow in any sort of chronologically um rational function <laughs> one of these days we're gonna go to bay city and we're gonna let you all know how it makes us feel even if we have to go in our wheel force best wheelchairs yeah we'll we'll get there perfect well well this has been another episode of texas overture Woo-hoo. thank you all very much thank you for listening i'm camille i'm faith See you next time.